Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer Gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Hi guys, this is, uh, this is Casey. I've got to keep my voice down a little bit here. I'll explain why in a minute. Um, back in the 1970s, it was pretty, uh, it's pretty hip idea, a hip notion for a guy to live with two girls. At least for a guy's point of view, you'd think it was, you know kind of hip and swinging back then so it was cool but i'm here to tell you now in the 2010s as a man that lives with two ladies it's it's kind of hold on i think i heard him yeah it's kind of terrifying living with two ladies i i i'm outnumbered here folks it's it's kind of scary taking over all the bathrooms all my closets I, i i don't i have my my recording room that's it that's all i got But, back in 1974, it worked out a lot better for Robin Tripp. Well, seemingly a lot better. Back when Robin Tripp was living with Chrissy Plummer and Joe in merry old England. In Man About the House, our feature for this week's episode of 1951 Down Place. This is a movie based off a TV show that ran for many years there in England. Uh... It is one of Hammer's few pure comedy entries into their film catalog. So it was a nice treat for Derek Scott and I to check this out. This movie and the TV show that it stemmed from are what helped inspire the show that we all know and love here in the States, at least if you're our age, uh, Three's Company. You can see the similarities between Robin Tripp, Jack Tripper, Chrissy Plummer, etc. So... There it is. This is our first foray into... Oh, oh, hold on. I thought it was them again. (sighs) Anyways, sit back and enjoy this episode of 1951 Down Place where we step outside our comfort zone of Hammer Horror and take a look at Hammer Comedy for a change. On the grounds of Supermate's estates, there stands an ancient crumbling abode. This structure is said to contain unimaginable horrors, certain to chill your blood. Dare you enter the House of Franklinstein? You're insane. Don't tell me of it. I don't want to hear. I've changed my mind. I won't do it. In September and October, join the Baron Franklinstein and his bride. Woman. Prayer. Yes. I want prayer. For four bone-chilling episodes as they discuss some of your favorite classic horror films. I am Dracula, and I welcome you to my house. My name is Horace. And resurrect 
and dissect some of the greatest monsters in cinema history. There's an old poem. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. But don't fear, comic fans. This house is full of dusty long boxes containing your favorite superheroes encounters with the supernatural. Vampires, Batman! We're surrounded! Your horror host will unravel a harrowing adventure each episode. Now, Superman, you will feel the bite of Dracula. This house of horrors can be found at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com or on iTunes by searching for Supermates. Go quickly. Go! So, grab your crucifix and wolfsbane, light your candle, and explore the blood-soaked corridors of the House of Frankenstein. We'll be expecting you. Go now, and heaven help you. Meeting adjourned. films made its mark on genre hounds like us by adapting other material, the Frankenstein, the Dracula films. Well, they would adapt other projects as well. They adapted the Dick Barton radio serials into a series of three films of their own. The Quatermass films were an adaptation of television. And then in the 70s, they adapted some sitcoms into feature films. They did three on the buses films, and then they also did a film based on the sitcom Man About the House, which was a UK sitcom in the 70s that we here in the States would eventually remake ourselves and call it Three's Company. Man About the House was a 1974 film that we're covering here on this episode of 1951 Down Place. I'm Derek. Scott and Casey are either Chrissy or Joe. I don't know who's wearing the blonde wig. <laughs> I'm Larry. You're Larry. (laughs) (laughs) How's it going, guys? Uh, Before we get too far into this review, I would like to offer my sincerest apologies to my co-hosts for picking this film. (laughs) Wow. I was the one that schedules uh, the films that we uh, watch here on the show, and I did pick this one because, yeah, I was a fan of Three's Company growing up. Uh, You used to rush home to watch it uh, in the afternoons on syndication and was really curious about this. So I guess curiosity killed the cat. (laughs) It's an understandable uh, curiosity. See, I didn't have a Three's Company connection growing up. It wasn't something that was played in my childhood uh, household, I guess, growing up. It wasn't something that we really watched a lot of. I don't know if my mother thought it was a little too risque. I don't know. But it just wasn't something that I have a huge connection to. I'm familiar with it. I've gone back. I've seen episodes of it since. But like, I don't have the connection that you two do to it. So when I watched this movie and there are some things that reminded me of Three's Company, I didn't have a compare and contrast thing going on. It's just like, oh, that's where Three's Company got it. You know what I mean? So I don't have like an immediate benchmark to compare it to. Yeah, I mean, 
for the for you listeners out there, Scott and I were talking about this before we started recording. I mean, for me, Three's Company was something that we, you know, was on and it was already in syndication back when I was like in elementary school in the early '80s or even late '70s, and they. So it was something that was on all the time on repeat, and when you got home from school, so I used to watch this a lot because it was light, it was funny, and it was something that was played in the background when you, you know, and when you grew up in northern indiana and you don't have cable you've got like three channels you watch what's on and this is one of the ones that i watched uh pretty regularly pretty faithfully so yep i was in that same boat no cable tv in uh central indiana and get to watch whatever they decide to show and it was usually this and gilligan's island so yeah but I, I definitely had that compare and contrast going on the entire time I was watching this film. I'm like, oh, this is where Three's Company got that. Or, oh, Three's Company did it this differently or whatever. Right. And there's Mr. Roper. There's Larry. There's, you know. Yeah, all the usual suspects are, are here. Exactly. And even for somebody who had a passing knowledge of Three's Company, I was able to identify what was happening. I mean, right down to Robin, the Played by Richard O'Sullivan. Played by Richard O'Sullivan. Uh, he had the interest in being a chef. He was going to culinary school. I mean, I, I was able to pick up on all of those. But yeah, I don't have like specific episode or episodic references to go to. Well, there was you know you mentioned the the chef, but there's also a big difference with uh, that character. In the American version, he's pretending to be a man of an alternate lifestyle, shall we say? So the Ropers yeah. will let him live there. That's not in this film at all. It's not in the film. Now, have either of you actually watched any episodes of the TV series that aired in the UK? No. No, but I'm actually kind of curious to see some. I haven't seen any myself either, although I have gone back and read like episode descriptions and things like that, thanks to Wikipedia. And that Robin being gay does seem to be something that was in the show. Hmm. It just, for whatever reason, didn't carry over to the film. I don't know if the film was intended to be just another episode in the sitcom series, because that's kind of what it felt like to me. And at that point in the overall story arc, maybe the Ropers had just come to accept who Robin was, and it didn't really matter. At that point, it just wasn't part of the story anymore. Oh, it was the swing in 70s. True. Yeah. Now, if I remember right, too, the other big difference that I can remember, and I'm, and again, it's been decades since I used to watch this faithfully, so I could be wrong, but I I know in the in Three's Company, Jack was always trying after the two girls, you know, because he was Jack and he's a fun loving guy, so he was always you know like the things with the strip poker stuff like that that fit in perfectly. But at the same time, then in in Man About the House, you see a point later on in the film where him and where Robin and Chrissy actually do start getting together, so to speak. And I don't think they ever actually accomplished getting together in Three's Company, did they? No, I remember in the TV show, he was going after both of them. This yeah. one, he seemed to be more focused on just Chrissy. But there was never a point where they actually started... No, no, they never... ...becoming more of a couple, where in this movie, there in this version, it kind of was. No, <laughs> nothing like that. They ended, In fact, uh, Jack ends up marrying somebody that is introduced later on in the series. Yeah. Well, and if you go back and read the episode descriptions for previous episodes of Man About the House, even in that series, Robin doesn't really hook up with Chrissy. Chrissy hooks up with somebody else. And it goes off and gets married at the end of the series. And then Robin married somebody else and 
starts its own spin-off show called Robin's Nest. So which was a lot a more yeah, which was a lot more successful than Three's Crowd. <laughs> <laughs> so it must have just been a one-off thing for the movie. Wow, we're even going to the spin-offs. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this was in the 70s. This is towards the end of the classic Hammer run. Now, the 70s weren't necessarily a really dry spell for Hammer. They still did some good work. They did the Karnstein trilogy at the beginning of the 70s. Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires was 1974. Same year as this. Yeah. So, I don't know what happened. I mean, Captain Kronos, 1974. <laughs> Well, we're not going to go there. Oh, I did. I'm editing this show, and I just dropped that stinger more than once. Uh, <laughs> well, I like this film better than Captain Kronos, so. What? Oh, my. Wow. I actually did, and, I, and I'm not being funny. Huh. I don't even know you anymore. <laughs> well, folks, this is the last episode of 1951 Down Place. I hope you enjoyed. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've decided that Scott's wearing the blonde wig. We're just going to rotate him out for another blonde wig. That's <laughs> what start, you do, right? Starting next month, Derek and Casey will have a new co-host. <laughs> a yeah. different blonde. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, I don't know. In terms of what's going on with Hammer, they're trying to kind of stay afloat. And, you know, they're not really shooting at Bray anymore. I don't even know if they still have Bray at this point. I'd have to double-check the history. They shot a little bit at Elstree at this point. But this film... Ended up being shot at the TV station, which is also where they shot the series. I which don't is not really know a lot. Yeah, which is not surprising when you start looking at the cast and crew. It's mostly the the group that did the television series, right? So they they were in their comfort zone where where they've been filming the whole time. I feel like the cast and crew were in their comfort zone, but maybe Hammer Films wasn't. I got the impression, and it just may be me that Hammer just kind of like okay, we'll. We'll distribute this film, but all you TV guys, just make the film that you want to make, and we'll distribute it. We, we're kind of hands-off on this. It's going to be a Hammer film, but it's, again, not going to be a Hammer film. It might just been a business decision. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it, potentially. Uh, you know, you look at the people who were involved in the production. You look at the director, John Robbins, who is better known for Benny Hill than Hammer. You know, I, I guess at the end of, very end of his career, he directed an episode of The Monsters Today. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, you know, it's not like this had Hammer in the driver's seat. We should start a Benny Hill podcast. You only said that so I'd drop Yakety Saxon, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Seeing it's not a visual <laughs> podcast and we can't have Benny chasing around half naked women, I guess we'll have to go with Yakety Sax. I know what we need to try and film the next time we're all at a convention together, though. <laughs> I'm not wearing the blonde wig. <laughs> I meant us chasing uh, naked women, not us being chased naked or anything. Thank God. Just to be clear. <laughs> well, as far as this film goes, you know, like we said, it didn't really have a lot of real hammer ties. Maybe Scott's right. Maybe it was an issue where... They just distributed, which is kind of sort of what Hammer's doing now. You know, it's not like there's a, an in-house team that's making these movies. They 
have other people work for them and, and put their movies out. It's less about having the hammer stamp and more about having the hammer name. I, I don't know. We mentioned John Robbins as the director. I don't know anything about the crew. I tried, you know, we try to bring a certain level of research to the show, but because of what this movie is, I didn't find a heck of a lot. Now, before we started recording, Scott said he found like a review, but a review on the uh, Radio Times uh, London website from 1974. Basically, it says, uh, "Great cast, shame about the script." Not the product you would normally associate with Hammer, but this spinoff from the popular TV series was a kind of a project the House of Horror was forced to resort to as the fright business took a downturn in the mid-70s. The material is thinner than a bed-sit wall as housemates Richard O'Sullivan, Sally Thompson, and the excellent Paula Wilcox team up with their inimitable landlords Brian Murphy and Yutha Joyce after they come up against an unscrupulous property developers. Watch out for welcome turns from Spike Milligan and Arthur Lowe. And that's the entire review. <laughs> <laughs> and while Scott was reading the review, I was trying to look into the people who wrote the film, Johnny Mortimer and Brian Cook, and they did a lot of television in the UK and also apparently also ended up writing some episodes of Three's Company here in the States, as well as Three's A Crowd and The Ropers. So they stayed attached to the project or what became the project here in the States for a little while. You and me together, we're gonna weather the odds and win. Did you guys ever see Three's Crowd? I think once or twice, but it never stuck with me. I remember watching The Ropers, but yeah, Three's a Crowd, is that the one where Jack had the restaurant? And yeah. he was married, yeah. and, and the, his wife's father kept trying to interfere in everything. Yeah. 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 No, I never, just... never saw it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, it sounds very similar to the Robin's Nest spinoff of Man About the House, where Robin goes off and gets married and ends up taking over a restaurant beneath where they live, that sort of thing. Anyway, I probably need to watch the series. Maybe I need to go back. We should do a Three's Company podcast. There you go. I, I'd watch that. I haven't watched the shows. It would be like Scott and I change spots. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I would love to watch, you know, John Ritter acting again. I was a big fan of his, so. Yeah. I mean, that's the one big thing that was a takeaway. You know, I know Casey had mentioned this before we started recording, but, you know, watching this, I was reminded of, of the work of John Ritter quite a bit. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Watching this movie, if nothing else, it made me really miss John Ritter. Yeah, I could see that. Dude was a funny guy. Yeah, that he was. Well, do we want to talk a little bit about the story of this film? Dive into it? I know Scott's waiting <laughs> well, <laughs> ready well, to go. Well, we haven't talked about any of the cast. Oh, okay, fine. Let's talk about the cast. <laughs> you mentioned John Ritter, uh, the analog. Yeah. <laughs> the analog or the, uh, the Robin instead of. It's Jack, right? In three companies, yeah, it's Jack. Jack Tripper. So it's Robin Tripp in Man About the House, played by R Richard O'Sullivan, who I guess was kind of considered a heartthrob type. Oh, boy. Well, back in the 70s. I don't know. But yeah, he was our lead. Chrissy was played by the brunette, Paula Wilcox, and Joe was the blonde, Sally Thompson. Which kind of threw me off for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. I didn't think about it because, again, I didn't have the immediate connection. But all three of those characters 
are from the television show and, and the actors as well. As are the Ropers. As are the Ropers. George and Mildred, who did have their own spinoff as well, called, I think, George and Mildred. <laughs> yes. That's what, <laughs> uh, played by Brian Murphy and Youth of Joyce, uh, respectively. And Larry also was from the show, played by Doug Fisher. Which Larry is also in, you know, all of these characters, except for Joe, there is an analog to Joe, but she's not known as Joe, but pretty much carried the names over. Yeah. You know, Robin Tripp, Jack Tripper, pretty close. We got Chrissy Plummer, who was, um, oh, I'm blanking on her name, the blonde. Suzanne Summers. Suzanne Summers, yes. The thigh master. The th- <laughs> 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 Chrissy played by the thigh master. <laughs> and then you've got the Ropers and you've got Larry. You know, the direct names that, that did make it over to the U.S. version. All of my memories of Three's Company involve Don Knotts. And they don't involve the, the Ropers. And that's after the, you know, that's several seasons in after the Ropers sell the building and Don Knotts becomes the landlord. Yeah. And then the Ropers had their own spinoff. We you, you talked about that, right? Yeah, the Ropers the, the had Ropers. their spinoff. Too. How long yeah. did it last? Maybe a season or two. Not very long. They ended up buying another building and then they had a family that was one of their tenants that, you know, a man and a woman and a cute little boy. Just, you know, it's like most television shows, you got to eventually put in a, the cute little boy who's a nephew or a neighbor or something to try to boost the ratings. So kind of like a Cousin Oliver. Exactly. Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> on Growing Pains kind of thing. Yeah, I forgot that uh, Don Knotts was at Mr. Roper. Was the Mrs. Roper from Three's Company as hard up as... <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, yeah. That's <laughs> even more so. I mean, they did play that up in this movie, but... It was more over the top in the U.S. version, yeah. I think. But the original Mr. Ro- our Mr. Roper, who was Norman Fell, wasn't quite as um, nebbish. Is that a good way to put it? Is the one in uh, Man About the House? I mean, he was uptight and stuff like that, but he didn't seem kind of like uh, rodent-like, I guess, <laughs> and quite as snively. I don't. He had he, his own appeal, and he didn't. He wasn't as money hungry, I think, right. as, as in this one. He was more. I think, yeah, he was more lazy than money hungry. Yes. I got the impression, and again, having not seen any episodes of Man About the House, I got the impression that the George and Mildred Roper in the movie were painted a little bit more broadly than they might have been in a long-form series, especially George because he seemed so one-dimensional. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine a TV series lasting featuring these two characters, and it went on until Youth of Joyce's death, that TV series did. So I... Youth of Joyce was one of the highlights for me in this film. I, I really liked her portrayal of, of Mildred Roper. Yeah, she was pretty good. It's funny as we talk about this, is keep talking about mentioning Three's Company and whatnot, and I'm clicking around looking on IMDb and stuff like that. I can still remember the layout of their apartment. That's crazy. And that was I one thing. Remember. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I can remember where Jack's bedroom was. I can remember where Janet and Chrissy's bedroom was, and then the bathroom in between, and then the kitchen outside of the living room on the other side of the apartment. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> well, that was one thing in this version that, you know, I was doing the same thing. I was like, okay, I was trying to compare the apartments. In the movie, they never show the bedroom. Yeah. And so I don't know if there's, you know, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, as you're looking at the living room, it's got to be off to the left because the kitchen and the bathroom were off to the right. But right. They, You know, they were saying it was just a, a one-bedroom flat. Were they all three in the same bedroom, or did uh, Robin sleep on the couch? I got the impression, at least at the very beginning, they mention the living situation because they're talking about the bolt on the bedroom door. Yeah, because he's trying to—he's he, being tasked to fix the bathroom door because it's 
it's broken. And he says, well, I'll take the bolt off the bedroom door. And Chris, he says, no, you won't. Look, when are you going to fix the lock on that door? No, I'll get around to it. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I'll put that bolt on that door. What bolt? Put the one from your bedroom door. You know, I can quite easily unscrew it. And, uh... You leave that where it is. All right, all right. If it gives you the illusion of safety. Illusion? Another three feet and my tunnel is completed. <laughs> it must have been a different time, man, because... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll live with a man, but we got to make sure the door is locked because if we don't, he's just going to wander right in the bedroom. Like, no, I do like, you know, like the next scene, he's he's talking with Larry and he's like, yeah, they put a bolt on the bedroom. I can't get out. <laughs> it was very swinging 70s at the very beginning. It did have that vibe because they're all in the bathroom together and Chrissy's in the bathtub. I'm sorry, Joe's in the bathtub. <laughs> that, that seemed very, they're very friendly with one another. Maybe it was just me. Maybe I just wanted to see that towel. Come down. I don't know. <laughs> Closest I'll ever get to seeing the thigh master without it. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so that's how the movie starts. Yes. Scott, you want to go from there? Well, I, I do have to do my. Um, do you my- have one? No, no James Bond connection. <laughs> it's close, as close as I could get. And this is, you always claim that I'm really stretching. Well, this, you know, I think I hurt several muscles stretching for this one. Paula Pert. Now, she was the, only Ooh. in one scene, she is the secretary uh, for the, the property developer. And you see her in one scene with when they're in his office and he's like delivering coffee or something. Now, she was in a film with Sean Connery called Cuba in 1979. <laughs> That's as close as I can get. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Is there a Disney connection? I couldn't find a Disney connection either. There's a Monty Python connection, kind of. Yes, there's a Monty Python oh. because Spike Milligan was in The Life of Brian. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we got. That's I all guess. we got. <laughs> I mean, you know, like like we said earlier, the biggest connection though is most of this cast was from the original British television show. That's about the biggest we thing we can do. Well, well shall we? Shall, shall we get, we into, get it? into We it? talked about how it started. Yes, you know, we see the our three flatmates. Oh wait, wait. I'm sorry. I, I we may have skipped ahead one of the best parts of the film. I'm sorry. The theme song. Oh, the theme song. I'm assuming you're uh, dropping it in here. Oh yeah. Always had it easy with a man about. Steaming up the mirror when I'm making up my face He's just a friend, a helping hand, a ready, willing smile But could it be that love has been here on my doorstep all the while It's not easy when he's always been just a man Somebody's steam in the mirror while I'm putting on my makeup or whatever. I what? <laughs> uh, yes, man about the house theme song. Which I don't know if you ran into this, you know, to sidetrack just for a second when you were trying to look up information about this film. Did you come up with a whole bunch of uh, handyman services that are called man about the house all over the country? <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man, yeah, it's hard to look up stuff about this one. Now, if there's a listener out there who knows <laughs> more about the film, please call in and let us know because I'm, I'm still kind of curious, sort of, sort of. We meet our three flatmates. They're um, in the bathroom, as we said earlier, steaming we've, up the mirror. Steaming up the mirror. We've got. Um, <laughs> We have Robin, Trip. He's shaving his mustache. We've got Chrissy. She's already fully dressed, just getting ready to, to leave the bathroom. And then we have Joe uh, taking a bubble bath, waiting for uh, Robin to leave the bathroom so she can get out of the water. He says, well, I'll close my eyes. And she said, are they closed? And so he opens them back up to look. He says, yes, they're closed and closes his eyes again. <laughs> So she gets out, the bubbles stick where they're supposed to stick, and she gets a, a towel out. And of course, this time, Robin is done shaving, and he goes over and grabs the end of the towel that she's wearing to clean off the excess shaving cream. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Listen, um, you know, if you want any help showing yourself down, you know, I could do it by touch of them. You'll be lucky. Mm-hmm. He then exits into the kitchen where uh, Chrissy is making eggs, and he complains about that they've had eggs every morning. Chrissy then shows the um, saucepan that's got sausage and bacon or something in it that's pretty much charred ruins, because it was Joe's turn to make breakfast. They all realize that they're late for the places they've got to go. They, they never really say where, I don't, can't remember where Chrissy is supposed to be, off to work or something. But Joe, or excuse me, Robin has to get to school. It's his last day of culinary school. Larry pulls up outside in his VW Bug and starts blaring the horn because he's going to give them a ride. Morning, Mrs. Roper. Oh, morning, love. Morning, Mr. Tripp. Morning, Mrs. Roper. Uh, did your friend get anything else for Christmas? Hmm? Oh, I know what you mean. I'm sorry. Yeah, he's got this theory that it recharges the battery. <laughs> well, it doesn't worry me, love, but you see, it might wake Mr. Roper. Why, is he still in bed? I don't know. He's been out for hours. He's not awake yet. So Chrissy and Robin climb into the bug, and they take off on this very high-speed, sped-up film chase scene through London, <laughs> even though they're not really chasing anything. Is that something from the series? Was Larry a crazy driver? Not that I ever remember. I don't remember ever them showing driving scenes in Three's Company. Okay. But yeah, he's a crazy driver going the wrong way on one-way streets and almost coming into several accidents. Finally, they drop Chrissy off at the train station and ends up taking Robin to his culinary school where he's late and gets berated that he lives five minutes away and he's late and there's a woman in the class that lives an hour away and she's always early. And he makes some sort of like double-speak joke here. Good morning, Mr. Tripp. Ah, good morning. Mr. Tripp. How is it that Miss Grace, who lives over an hour away, is always early? And yet you, who live only five minutes away, are always late. Yes, well, you see, if she's late, she's got time to hurry up. Yes. You see, if I'm late, I'm already here. I think this movie, because we've had a couple of moments already with Robin, I think this movie is an excellent example of what we don't get about 1970s British humor. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it's it's just because it's not part of our cultural you know, lexicon. I don't know. But I think if you're looking for that, you're probably going to find it in the movie. We just didn't catch a lot of it because it's not something that we grew up with. Despite having Monty Python and that sort of thing in our blood, it's a different kind of humor. Does that make sense? Well, the one thing I was having trouble with, and it's all the way through this film, is a lot of the the British slang 
from that time period that I just didn't know. Now, the style of humor, I got more of a television sitcom vibe all the way through this film. Yeah, exactly. But but it's not American it's, sitcom. It's exactly. a British sitcom, yeah. But not a Monty Python. You know, I'm... I, no. I even watched the Money Python TV show. This is this is a different style of humor. The dry British wit that Monty Python is known for isn't in this film. This is more slapsticky, double entendre, which unfortunately, not knowing a lot of the slang, fell on deaf ears for us. And I do want to comment on the Larry Carr stuff. It was a cheap laugh. It could have been used to pay off something that happened later that didn't. And when we get there, I'll mention it again. Okay. Well, after class, I guess they didn't want to uh, bother Larry again because they get on the bus, Robin and Chrissy. And as they're driving back to where their flat is, they notice a couple of buildings that a cinema and some other things that have been torn down. And um, a property development company is taking them over. And they're complaining about how sad that is that all of these apartment complexes and everything are leaving London. They get home and they find out that same property development company is trying to buy their row houses, their flats that they live in. There's six uh, houses there. You know, they go in to talk to Mr. and Mrs. Roper. Mr. Roper is obviously interested in selling because he wants the money. Mrs. Roper obviously does not want to sell because at one point she says this is the only thing that they have from their that shows from their wedding is this building they bought, their house. So she doesn't want to sell. They end up putting together a neighborhood coalition or something at the bar. What was the name of the bar in the Three's Company? Something Beagle. The Regal Beagle. The Regal Beagle, yes. They never give a name of it, but I just assumed that it was the Regal Beagle (laughs) that they go to. (laughs) And Robin ends up nominating Chrissy as one of the board members, and then one of the other members, one of the other homeowners becomes a member and also... Mildred Roper. So the three of them decide that they're going to put together a petition to stop this company from buying the houses and tearing them down. They're going to present this petition to the Historic Society to try to get some sort of statement on these houses that they're significant and they can't be torn down, is the best I could gather from it. But in this meeting, we also meet Morris Pluthrow, Peter Sellier. Man, he's the one working for the real estate developer. He's the one trying to get all the papers signed and and all that. And there's this really creepy, uneasy talk with him and one of the other homeowners talking about this one guy that's sitting with them, a younger guy, and that he's sort of a Greek god on a motorcycle. And that scene was kind of uncomfortable. I didn't know what exactly they were shooting for there. It was odd. I mean, they go back to it as well, but it was weird. Yes. So <laughs> so they go off and they, they start to try to uh, get these petitions. They knock on the houses next door and they find out that one homeowner has already sold the house. And as the guy with the was talking about liking the guy on the motorcycle, the Greek god, he's already sold his house. So he obviously doesn't sign. And then there's the is it the woman with the chihuahua or whatever. I don't remember her name exactly. They send Robin to go. And as, as he's walking up to the flat, the milkman comes up. Oh, you're going to so-and-so's house? Here, take the milk. I'm tired today. And the mailman says, oh, here, here here's her mail. Take it up there. You know, I'm a married man. Robin knocks on the door, and she ends up pulling him into the, into the apartment. And obviously wants Robin for a plaything. I'm terribly sorry. 
thought you were the dustman. Oh, no. Uh, no, I'm, I'm Trip. <laughs> Robin, thank you. Trip, from uh, number six. Uh, I've come about the, the petition here. How fascinating. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, you're just a little bit. <laughs> if you could, please, if you could just sign... They're not true, you know. The rumours about me. Uh, what, what rumours? They're not true. People try to take advantage of my warm nature. Huh? Uh, oh, I've, I've got the pen here. If you could just put your signature. While you're here, would you like to see what I do? And Robin doesn't really want to have anything to do, which seems odd because that's all he's been trying to do in the apartment. But obviously he doesn't want anything to do with this woman. Which is a very sitcom-y kind of oh, yeah. moment. This whole episode, I mean, I think we could call it an episode, felt very sitcom-like. Oh, yeah. If you thought that was a sitcom scene, then you, you've got Robin at his first day at his new job. Oh, yeah. Where we meet a very <laughs> stereotypical, you know, I had the impression just by looking at him that this guy was probably a cook on a sailing ship somewhere. You in the Navy. <laughs> and after he got out of the Navy, he opens up this greasy spoon in London, and now he's the chef, which when you look at the outside of the restaurant, you know, I, I kind of envisioned it being a diner, but it's, it looks like it's supposed to be this nice restaurant. But the kitchen is a mess. Yeah, it's pretty gnarly. <laughs> you know, the guy is like scratching his ear and then goes back to putting his hands in the food, goes to the bathroom, comes back, puts his hands in the food, and all this just... Very sitcommy, you know, trying to showing show you that this is the worst way that we can just show this kitchen. And the guy was just telling stories. You know, he tells Jack this story about you know one time he was with two nurses and decided to play strip poker and gets to the one point where he says he got down to this one part where they were in their knickers and I was starkers and <laughs> of course Robin gets this idea that okay strip poker that's a great idea so he's going to take that home and challenge Chrissy and Joe to around a strip poker. Brilliant at, plan. Brilliant plan. Of, of course, at first, Chrissy uh, doesn't really want to have anything to do with it. Well, he's bringing up, you know, it's a good way to pass the time. Yeah. Cards. Cards. We should all play cards. You know, and he's, he's really laying it on thick. And they get home, and, and Chrissy's in the kitchen. Joe's in the bathroom. At one point, he goes into the bathroom to talk to Joe, and he's like, Chrissy and I are going to play strip poker, but it's going to invite you, but... Chrissy seems to think that, you know, you'll be too much of a prude. You won't want to play. And so he walks out of the bathroom, pretends to tell Chrissy in front of Joe, well, I guess it'll just be the two of us. And he walks over by Chrissy and says, well, Joe and I are now going to play some strip poker. Just going to be the two of us. She thinks you're too prude to play. Well, of course, the two women decide that they are going to play. They're in the kitchen. Robin is back in the main sitting room and starts putting on extra clothing. I guess he doesn't trust his card-playing skills. Again, I don't have the connection to the show that you guys do, but this felt very Three's Company. The three of them, him trying to pull one over on the girls and the girls turning the table. Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. definitely, definitely. Okay. So they decided that they're going to play strip poker, and um, we see this scene where Robin hands the deck of cards to Chrissy, to pass them out, as she says. And he says, well, you mean deal. And then she goes through this very elaborate shuffling, like something you would see a very high-end Las Vegas dealer do. And at that point, you know, Robin's like, oh, what have I gotten myself into? And she ends up dealing the cards out. Every single hand, Joe folds. And it just comes up between Robin and Chrissy. 
you know, it kind of fast forwards a little bit and you see Robin pretty much the only thing he's got on is his underwear and the two girls are completely clothed. They haven't taken anything off yet. So they, they deal. And of course they're also like comparing, you know, what clothes should be equal to what, which I thought was kind of funny because they get to the point where they're on the hand where Robin just has his underwear on and he decides he's going to bet his underwear. And Chrissy says, well, I'll bet a shoe. And he's like, my underwear is worth more than a shoe. And so she says, okay, two shoes. And then I think that's the one hand that Robin wins. So Chrissy takes off her shoes. And then, of course, the next hand, Robin loses and has to take his underwear off. So he's sitting there naked. And there's a knock at the door, and they they force Robin to go get it. And he pulls off the uh, tablecloth to where to go get the door. And as he's walking out of the scene, you know, Joe and Chrissy are talking. And Joe says something along the lines like, or, no, he was cheating by putting on the tablecloth and Chrissy says well he wasn't the only one cheating and you see her dealing out all f- five aces <laughs> <laughs> laugh track here laugh track here yes <laughs> <laughs> and that comes back up later in the film because uh, he also challenges them to strip monopoly at one point strip and, chess and right? strip, strip chess at the end of the film Yeah, that's kind of a running gag you know that all happened actually before the society gets together to start doing that petition because at at that petition night larry is there and he's complaining to robin that you know it's been a while you know i I need a woman i haven't been with a woman for such a long time do you think joe would want to go for a ride with me so he's like well maybe i i don't know but why don't you do that because then i can get some some time with uh with chrissy alone larry ends up convincing joe to go out for a ride in the country in the in the bug and then we see Chrissy and Robin head back up to the apartment, and he starts putting his moves on. And I think he gets farther than Jack Tripper ever got with any of his flatmates in Three's Company because he gets ends up getting Chrissy on the couch, and they're snuggle up together, and they're about ready to kiss. We also are interspliced this scene with Larry and Joe parked out at some park at twilight, and Chrissy is like, no, we're not doing anything else. But at one point she says, I will put in a good word with my friends with you. I won't say that nothing happened. You know, I won't say anything, but I'll put in a good word for you. And he finally <laughs> accepts that. But uh, so they're I'll getting give ra- you a good reference. It just seems like- <laughs> yes. <laughs> but she won't let Larry drive home because she's already heard, you know, ridden with Larry and how bad of a driver he is. So they switch places, and she's behind the wheel and starts to drive, but unfortunately drives in reverse right back into the lake. So we go back to this... Laugh track. Laugh track, yes. We go back to the <laughs> scene in the house where Robin and Chrissy are snuggled up on the on the couch, and Robin's about ready to kiss Chrissy when Larry and Joe come barging in, soaking wet. Robin is giving Larry a hard time, like, worst timing ever. <laughs> Poor Robin. Poor Robin. Hmm. Aha! Oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I need to interrupt here. Okay. I found a James Bond connection. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. Okay. Man About the House. Art direction by Don Picton, (laughs) who also was in the art department on For Your Eyes Only. Oh, good job. Oh, Man, that was hard work. (laughs) 
right. Wow. Anyway. <laughs> well, uh. back to our adventures. Oh, boy. We find out that the company is still looking at these different houses. They're trying to... They bought a couple others. The signs are popping up. We then find that there's this one house that a woman is living in. Morris goes up to talk to her and finds out that she's not the one that owns the place. She just lives there. At the same time, we've got Chrissy getting to a thousand signatures on the uh, the petition. And she's going to take the petition to Sir Edmund Weir, who is somebody in the planning office or historic society. I don't know exactly what his position is. It's a local politician type. He yes. does something and he's happily married. Sort of. ha- yes. Happily married. He takes the petition in and he decides that he is going first to ignore it because, you know, that's not a big deal until Chrissy says something along the lines of, you know, the address and the, and the houses and, he immediately, once he recognizes where she's talking about, throws all his support into fighting the development. It didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why he wanted to save the house. <laughs> yeah. So he starts in the paper uh, saying all of these, we're going to fight this. These are important houses. We need homes in in London and everything. So there are all these press clippings. And Mrs. Roper and Robin and Chrissy and Joe think they've won. Because they've got this politician behind them. Well, Morris, he kind of goes and speaks to uh, Sir Edmund Weir and brings out the fact that he is the owner of one of the houses, the, the one that this woman is living in, and he's having an affair with her. So he basically starts to blackmailing him into selling the place, or he's going to go say in public, you know, what's going on. So another house falls. And I think at this point we're down to where it's just number six, which is the one owned by the Ropers. Mrs. Roper ends up, she's going to go out shopping. She's going to go out and buy a negligee. So when she's wearing it, Mr. Roper will be able to identify the body if anything ever happens to her. (laughs) (laughs) Which I I thought that was, they were really the highlight. I mean, she was really the highlight. We talked about that earlier. That was pretty good. So she leaves and uh, Morris, who has been, outside this whole time sees her leave and sees this as his opportunity to talk to Mr. Roper. So he goes in and first off, Mr. Roper thinks he's in a great bargaining position because there's only this one house left and they need it. So he can ask for whatever he wants. Well, Morris plays that against him saying that just wanted to let you know that there's going to be a whole bunch of construction noise and everything next door when we pull these down and you might get vermin. Now, Mr. Roper has decided that he doesn't, you know, he's in a bad position. He's just got to accept whatever he can. So he's like, well, whatever you paid the other ones, I'll take that. So, of course, Morris pulls out the contract. And during the the point where they're getting ready to sign it, Mr. Roper makes the fact that the the kids upstairs, which are Robin, Chrissy, and Joe, have a three-year lease. They can't get out of it. And so, you know, Morris would have to take over that and provide them their place to live for three years. Of course, Morris can't do that because his boss is pressuring him to get this office park done so it could be named after the boss's wife's beagle. He realizes that he's got to talk the the kids out of their lease, get them to move. So he goes and knows where Chrissy is. I don't know if she's coming out of a shop or where she works or whatever. 
but he rolls up in his his rolls and picks her up and decides to take her to lunch so he can talk to her. And he'll take her anywhere that she wants to go. Well, she ends up wanting to go to the restaurant that Robin is working in that we talked about earlier. Except now when they get there and we see the kitchen, the kitchen is sparkling clean. Robin has actually taken over and made this place really nice. When they first showed that, it was because they didn't even lead it, really explain that it was Robin that did it. But all of a sudden they cut back to that kitchen and it was different enough that it made you do a double take. Well, and the roles have kind of reversed here, too. The chef's now kind of following his lead. You know, they're yes. Yeah. Something happened here. I mean, we, we missed an episode somewhere. We missed a week of the show. Yeah. Because all of a sudden the, the uh, chef, too, he's like, because Robin was asking if he could uh, handle something for him. He said, sure. Well, let me go wash my hands first because they were in the flower. Um, they were in the flower. When the last time we saw this guy, it looked like he hadn't showered since he left the service. <laughs> Well, they came in, and Larry is now working as a waiter busboy at the restaurant as well. And he notices when Morris and Chrissy come into the restaurant. And so Chrissy ends up uh, taking, you know, excusing herself and comes back to the kitchen and tells Robin what's going on. That this guy is trying to buy building number six and buy her out of the lease because she's the one that signed the lease. So he's offering her, you know, like 300 and 400 pounds to break the lease she obviously doesn't want to do that because if she does that then they'll be out of a house and basically robin and joe would be homeless as well so robin gets this brilliant idea that he's going to do something to morris's lunch (laughs) he sends larry over next door to the druggist to get whatever he can and ends up making this steak that has epsom salts on it some laxative I mean, I had to look up some of the stuff. Like One of the ingredients that he puts on, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it's basically a strong laxative. <laughs> and, of course, when they, you know, they get the food served to him, Morris is eating it. This is a very exotic flavor. <laughs> but he ends up eating it because he's more focused on his conversation with Chrissy to try to buy her out of this lease. No matter what he offers, she won't take it. Well, the phone rings in the limo or in the rolls, and the driver gets a message. He takes it in, hands it to Larry to hand to Morris, and it's basically Morris's boss saying, you need to come back right away. Of course, his stomach is starting to act up. He first has to excuse himself to the bathroom, and then he ends up leaving. He's meeting with the boss, and he's very uncomfortable. He obviously needs to to run to the washroom right away. The boss is basically telling him, you know, we're starting to get all this bad press from Sir Edmund Weir, which seemed kind of odd because I thought at this point they already already would have shut him up because they showed earlier with Morris saying, we know you own this house. But I guess the press took a while to get into the paper. I don't know. The big boss is like, you know, we we can't have this bad publicity. Uh, I'm supposed to go on television tonight to talk about this controversy but I'm not going to do that. You're going to represent me, and you're going to tell them that we are canceling this project. Guy takes it bad because this is his first big project, but then again, he also has to head to the bathroom very quickly. And in fact, the the big boss is, not in my private washroom. (laughs) He takes off. After he's done, he decides he's going to go to the television station, but then he changes and goes to talk to the Ropers one more time because if he can get that one house sold by 6 o'clock, the television show time, then the project can go forward. So he talks to 
Mr. Roper. At first, um, he's not going to do it because the kids still have their place. Mrs. Roper is also there at the same time when Morris gets there, and, and that's why Mr. Roper's not selling. So Morris leaves. Mrs. Roper goes upstairs to celebrate with the, the or invite the kids to come down to have a drink to celebrate. While she's gone, Mr. Roper signs the selling agreement, hops in his car, tries to get it started to race off to meet up with Morris at the television station. Mrs. Roper and the kids come downstairs. They see this. They then run outside and find Larry's car unlocked with keys in it on the street. They all hop in it, and they're going to chase off after Mr. Roper to the television station. I mentioned earlier something about the car and Larry driving. The first big thing that I, I thought was going to happen at this point, because Larry's underneath the car, and we find out as it pulls away. Right. I kind of expected the car not to have any brakes. Yeah. Uh, that he was working on the brakes. That's a very standard sitcom Sure. What, what I was kind of looking for, I suppose, here was just a callback to why we had to see Larry driving crazy to begin with. He was going to take them to the studio is what I thought, you know, because he's going to get them there fast because he can drive crazy. You know, who's going to get us there quick enough? Well, Larry can do it. So, you know, that, that's what I was kind of looking for was a callback to that at the very early beginning of the film. Well, neither of the callback of Larry driving or the brakes not working actually takes place. We see Mr. Roper get to the television station. He comes running into the front door and there's a security guard there that won't let him in because he doesn't have tickets to the today show, which is the show that where Morris is going to be on, which is a real show at the time. It was a real news program. So he won't let him in. So he ends up sneaking around trying to get in and he, he goes around back to the studio. Well, about this time, Mrs. Roper and the kids pull up in Larry's bug. They come running in and the same security guard at first won't let them in. He's talking you know, trying to figure out who Robin and Chrissy are. And then we find out Mildred looks at him and recognizes him. And earlier on the film, she talks a couple times about a long lost love that she should have been with. Well, it turns out to be, this is the long lost love. And of course uh, he starts talking with Mrs. Roper and all of his attentions on him and Robin, Chrissy and Joe take that opportunity to sneak back into the television studio. They're trying to find Mr. Roper. Mr. Roper's trying to find his way into the television show. The television show starts, and we've got the host there, and we find out that Sir Edmund Weir and Morris are guests on the show to talk about both sides of this housing development or this office building, whatever. And the host is like, talks to Sir Edmund Weir saying, you know, you're against this. And he looks at Morris and he says, well, I'm not anymore. And Morris then, you know, the the host looks at him and says, well, you're for this project. And he's like, well, no, I'm here to announce that we are going to be canceling. So at one point the host says, well, you guys have both switched sides. So I guess after this, we'll talk about it from the opposite or something. Well, at the same time, <laughs> it's not exactly what he says. We'll talk about it from the opposite or something. Yeah, I don't remember. Go exactly. to commercial. Go to commercial. Yeah, he's all flustered. <laughs> at this point is where um, we meet uh, Spike Mulligan in a very bizarre, surreal type scene. Spike comes out of his um, dressing room and tries to give directions to Mr. Roper. Spike, stop it! You're hitting or you're going Excuse me. Who are you? Uh, 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 Mr. Roper. What a good memory you've got. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm looking for today. Today? This is today. It's here with us all day today. No, no, no. All day today. You're standing on it. No, no. All these walls are today. No, I mean the studio. General direction. It's all in the general direction of today. No, studio, studio three. Studio three? Yes. Straight up here. The left. And left again. Left again, and then left again. Yeah. Oh, and I'll be there? No, you'll be back here. But by then, somebody might be here who knows the way. That was... Uh, now, who is Spike Milligan? He's a comic of the time? He's a com- a British comic of the time, okay. yes. Because he's got this cameo in here. There's a couple of other cameos as well from other British television of the time. And it just seemed like oddly placed. I'm sure if you were more versed in British television, it would make more sense. Because especially the scene, the next scene where Mr. Roper is in the... I'm guessing the restaurant at the studio or whatever, and he meets Jack Smetherhurst and Rudolph Walker. <laughs> Jack who? Smetherhurst. <laughs> S-M-E-T-H-U-R-S-T. Jack Smetherhurst and Rudolph Walker. Yes. And they were on a television show in the UK called Love Thy Neighbor. And I, I don't mean this by you know a, a black and white television show, but it was... You know, <laughs> a, uh, an African, a black and white intelligence, yes, an African European, because it wouldn't be African American, and who also, I guess, in the show, must have just berated each other for it, which something that I would never think would have been on television. <laughs> Some of the jokes they make, but they end up giving Mister Roper the directions to the television studio. At the same time, we've got Robin, Chrissy, and Joe making it to the television set as well. So do we want to bring all this up and tie it in a bow? Or? Tie it in a bow. Tie it off. <laughs> <laughs> we've got Put it out of its misery. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mr. Roper sneaks on there. He's sitting in the audience, and he's trying to signal Morris, pointing to the contract, at one point, he even tries to sneak onto the stage, which the producer sees and has one of the stagehands pull him away. And he gets deposited right next to Robin, Chrissy, and Joe just as they come back to the television program and Morris officially cancels the project. So the next scene, we see they're back at the, the houses. The corporate signs are being put into a truck. Mrs. Roper, Robin, Chrissy, Joe, and Mr. Roper are all in the Roper's apartment and celebrating no that's not true the kids are upstairs because that's when they start to play strip chess the kids (laughs) (laughs) that's what they're referred to in three's company all the time by the ropers oh really yeah so then mr roper and mrs roper are downstairs and somehow mr roper has agreed to have the guy that was the security guard at the television station come to visit and of course to stay come to stay like the new Renter? I I don't know. And Mrs. Roper was obviously thrilled because her first flame was coming home. And then credits roll. Well, credits roll just as Robin and Chrissy are about to... Play some strip chess. Actually get down to it. I mean, they kind of gave up on the chess. They Aren't they... They're horizontal at this point on the couch. And and Robin says something along the lines of how this doesn't feel quite right. And Chrissy's like, oh, you will not lay a hand on me. Okay, that's better. (laughs) Well, that's the way she's treated him the whole time. And maybe he kind of likes that. I don't know. (laughs) The man, the security guard that 
uh, Mrs. Roper had a fling with or first love or whatever. He's brought up the first time when the Ropers are watching a horror movie on TV, a werewolf film. Yes. Because Mrs. Roper makes a comment that looks like so-and-so, you know, my first boyfriend or whatever. This would have been an awesome time to insert something from like Curse of the Werewolf or something. You know, just a, an old Hammer horror film. Drop it in there because talking about a Hammer horror film on TV, come on. I mean, it's just like a missed opportunity right there to really make this a Hammer film. But Tracy said the same thing while watching that. She said, is she watching um, Curse of the Werewolf? And like, you don't really know because you can't hear anything or you don't actually see the television. Yeah, you just hear the end credit music, which didn't sound like anything I recognize. So. Oh, boy. What a film. I'm actually kind of glad that I did watch it. It was interesting to see where Three's Company came from and to see what items they kept when they started doing the U.S. version and, and some of the things that they, they didn't bring over. So for that, I'm glad I, I'm glad I watched it. I enjoyed it from a, an archaeological-type viewing of it, I guess. Archaeological-type viewing. <laughs> Unearthed Man About the House. Exactly. 1974. Other than that, it is definitely strong sitcom feel. If you like sitcoms, if you like cheap laughs, then give it a shot. It's nothing like we've seen in any of the other Hammer films that we've watched. It's a complete departure. There's none of the atmospheric. There's none, nothing gothic, nothing like that. It's just... The production design is very TV. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, the direction is pretty... I mean, it's like a sitcom. It's like three episodes of a sitcom kind of stitched together. Yeah, it definitely felt like an overstretched TV episode. Mm -hmm. But at the well, same time, I could also see, too, where I may not have necessarily enjoyed this movie the way it was put together. I mean, I didn't hate it or anything, but I could definitely... <laughs> tell from watching this i think i would enjoy it a lot better in like 30 minute bursts yeah i mean i'm curious about the series i'm curious about the television show it was based on and going back and watching some of that as i am you know as i said earlier i'm now interested i'd like to see some of the original television series for this because i did enjoy the three characters of robin chrissy and joe i, I did like richard o'sullivan paul wilcox and sally Thompson, but who I really liked is Yutha Joyce. I'd like to see more of her as Mrs. Roper. Apparently, she uh, kind of went out, unfortunately. She was a massive alcoholic, was drinking like half a bottle of brandy a day for 10 years. Wow. Yeah, and she died of liver failure just before she turned 53, Brian Murphy, who played George Roper, was a really good friend of hers, was there at her bedside when she passed. Uh, she apparently also died right before the production of the new season of The Roper Show, The George and Mildred Show. I don't know much more about her, but... You're not going to read the uh, quote that you sent us. <laughs> no. <laughs> should, should I? Uh, where did this come from? This came from The Sabotage Times. They did an article on the 10 hardest drinking British actors ever. Was Oliver Reed on there? <laughs> no. Wow. <laughs> but Yutha Joyce is listed, fondly remembered for her role as the cock-deprived suburbanite in 70s sitcom Georgia Mildred. Joyce kept her demons <laughs> firmly under wraps. 
boozy gossip about Joyce is virtually non-existent. Although throwing back more than half a bottle of brandy a day for a decade, the actress remained forever the pro, always on cue, until physical frailties convinced many that something wasn't quite right. That's a, that's a lot of booze. Yes, that is a lot of booze. And to think that she was able to perform at a level that really kind of hid that. For me, me. She's, she's one of the highlights of this film. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's not on the screen a lot, but when she is, I was really enjoying that. You know, and when I was looking at that and kind of looking at the timeline here, Man About the House came out in 1974, but the TV series actually ran to 1976. So this really could have been just another installment in the series. I'm wondering, you know, where does it fit in terms of the Man About the House universe? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, when they did the first X-Files movie, it took place while the TV show was on. So it was kind of sort of just another story along the way. I, I don't know. It's a stretch. Uh, you know, now I want to see a Man About the House extended universe fiction and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, learn the backstory of the cook. and <laughs> You know, 30 years from now, they'll, re- they'll say it's all null and void. It'll be kind of like the Man About the House, the legacy edition, you know, just the legends. When they put out another Man About the House series and kind of ignore all that's come before him. And they digitally insert another roommate. You know, it's just weird. (laughs) Anyway, this film. It's it's a film. (laughs) Good night, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Mentioned the director earlier, John Robbins, and how he really didn't have a Hammer connection. I was mistaken on that. He directed Nearest and Dearest for Hammer in 1972, which was another comedy. I don't think that one was based on anything like a TV series, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Maybe it was. Oh, it is based on a TV series. Never mind. Live research here on the show, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Exciting, right? Now, if you want to try to find this movie, it is a little difficult to track down. I'm looking at Amazon.co.uk, and for ten, basically ten pounds, you can buy it on VHS. Now, there was also a George and Mildred the movie. Wow! That you can get for uh, on DVD for three and a half pounds. Is that a Hammer flick? No, <laughs> I don't think no. so. <laughs> no. <laughs> but you can get the complete box set of Man About the House, the television show, for thirteen and a half pounds on DVD. Yeah, Yusuf Joyce died right before the film was released. So they also you can get George and Mildred the complete series for thirteen seventy, uh, Robin's Nest the complete series for eighteen and a quarter. So the television series is easy to find. The movie not so much. I agree with Scott. Yusuf Joyce was kind of the highlight. I'm glad I watched it because it kind of gave me a look into a different kind of film that I don't normally experience. I really liked Paula Wilcox too. I thought she was cute. Yeah, she was. But I don't know if I'm going to go spend a bunch of money on a VHS. <laughs> you know, I can't say that I necessarily enjoyed this movie as a, on its own. It was kind of dry for me, and I didn't get a lot of the humor, as Derek said before, just because it's British humor from the 70s, so I have no connection to it. But I enjoyed a lot of the cast. I thought they did a good job with what they had, and you know, some of them I like better than others. But I had a blast comparing this to what I knew from Three's Company. And so it was a good time just getting to see where the Three's Company stuff evolved from and being able to see the connections on the stuff that they used and stuff that they tweaked and everything like that. So it was pretty cool on 
a historical front. I second that. If you're a fan of Three's Company, you should watch this. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is interesting to kind of see the connections and all that. And like I said, I am curious about the TV series. I'm also curious to see. I would be curious to see it in a sitcom format, too, because I got a definite feeling from watching this movie that it does feel like it's overextended and stretched a little thin when, as they try and make it fit a feature length package. So I think I would be interested to see if it hits a lot better uh, pace wise and everything in that, you know, 25 minute format well if anybody out there has seen man about the house the tv series or the film or any of the spinoffs or has any comments or feedback about this particular film how do people get a hold of us scott well they can call us you know one of these days one of these months we're just going to produce a little bit where we can just drop that in so you don't have to keep doing it well until that time you can (laughs) you can call us at area code 765-203-1951 now, that's a Google Voice number, and it will cut off after three minutes, so just remember that. You can also send us an email at podcast at 1951downplace.com. And if you have the ability to create your own MP3 file, you can make it as long as you want and send it to us through that, through that format. You can also find our website at www.1951downplace.com, where you'll find out what episodes we've done in the past and what we've got coming up. We're also on Facebook. We have a group and a page. Just search for 1951 Downplace there, and you'll find the discussion going on. And eventually we will have our listener poll back up to uh, pick our movie for next July. Sorry about the dog. <laughs> they're playing out in the living room, and it's carrying. So at least it's just at the end. Richard O'Sullivan has not aged well. <laughs> I kept getting him confused with Gilbert O'Sullivan, alone again, naturally. Sally Thompson and him dated? Huh. For three years in the seventh, huh? Well, one thing's for sure. This episode has a lot more, quote-unquote, gossip than our normally 1951 Downplace episodes have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it is interesting to see that because it's coming from a different crowd than what we normally associate with Hammer. This cast and this movie and the things surrounding it at the time is a lot more tabloid-friendly than the typical Hammer Fair that we watch. Well, except for next month when we have Oliver Reed. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're going to be covering for October, Curse of the Werewolf. Yes. Nice transition there, Scott. Thank you. <laughs> I was trying to lay down a little bit of foreplay. <laughs> 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 oh boy! Where the kisses are hers and hers and his. <laughs> this is the point in the episode where Derek asks Scott if he wants to learn how to play strip chess. <laughs> oh no! Uh. All right, I'll go put the blonde wig on again. <laughs> Curse of the werewolf. October. Curse of the werewolf, and then in all the read. <laughs> And then in November, we'll have my birthday month, and we're going to watch Quatermass in the Pit. And then in January, we're going to go back to a film noir and cover The Flanagan Boy, which was released over here in the U.S. as Bad Blonde. And then we've got uh, Casey's birthday next February, and we don't know what we're going to show then. Yeah, so it could be a big surprise. could be a big uh <laughs> Pain in the butt, too. (laughs) (laughs) I think Casey was disappointed that um, the Roper spinoff show in the UK wasn't a Hammer film, because I think he would have picked that. (laughs) 
<laughs> right on. All right. Well, you can find all of this over at our website at 1951downplace.com. So check us out over there. Or Scott mentioned the Facebook pages and groups and all that. So that's where you can find us until next time. In the meantime, if you want to hear more of our velvety voices, Casey can be heard on Bloody Good Horror. Scott can be heard on Disney Indiana. And I can be heard on Monster Kid Radio. Follow the link over to our website. Do we have links to those shows on our website? I believe so, but I think they're at the bottom of the main page. We do. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Scott's the web guy. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We have a website? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Until then, keep the bolt on your bedroom door. (laughs) Scott, pass the wig. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not steaming up your windows or your mirrors. I don't know. Thank you. How do you get them? I used to do aerobics till I dropped. Then I found Thighmaster. Every single time you squeeze Thighmaster, you strengthen and tone right where you need it. So it's easy to squeeze, squeeze your way to shapely hips and thighs. I thought I'd never fit into these jeans again. Thank you, Thighmaster. The secret to shapely thighs is exercising these muscles with just the right resistance. This balanced resistance coil is designed to give you results quickly and comfortably. Want to tone your upper chest and arms? Thighmaster will give you excellent results. Thighmaster, we may not have been born with great legs, but now we can look like we were. To order your Thighmaster, call 1-800-241-6200. Have your credit card ready or send check or money order for $19.95 plus $4.50 for shipping and handling to this address. And if you're not fully satisfied, return it in 30 days for your money back. Plus, if you call right now, we'll also send you Suzanne's Slender for Life Plan absolutely free. So call now for quick delivery. So, uh, I looked, man. I got nothing research-wise. So, I like their version of Joyce DeWitt better. She's kind of cute, huh? Yeah. A little bit more, uh, what we'll talk about it, I suppose. Wh- which, which, which one you, you say is their version of Joyce DeWitt? Because the brunette in this one is named Chrissy. Yeah. That's true. Well, I'm figuring it's the brunette because you, you, get, you figure you gotta you compare... Yeah. Apples to oranges, see brunettes to brunettes and blondes to blondes. <laughs> so so you are dissing on a fellow Hoosier. Yeah. I just remember always seeing Joyce DeWitt down at the 500 every year we went. Yeah. I have absolutely no connection whatsoever to anything. <laughs> Three's Company or any of that. Oh, I used to watch Three's Company all the time. I yeah. got nothing. I used to watch that faithfully, even in syndication. Yep. That was like after school. It was background it, noise. Yep, that same here. That in Gilligan's Island. Yep, <laughs> that was part of the reason why I wanted to watch this since I was such you know, watch so many Three's Company episodes. It was pretty cool. I mean, we'll talk about it. It was pretty cool to see some of the comparisons, like the, with the names that popped up and stuff. Oh yeah. Also makes me miss John Ritter. That's true. Dude was awesome. <laughs> 
Eric is just like, I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> I totally have that Three's Company theme stuck in my head now. <laughs> Come and knock on my door. The kisses are hers, hers and his. <laughs> oh. It's kind of <sighs> kind of sad that Hammer had to go out this way. I don't know what the fuck Hammer happened. I don't know what happened to Hammer. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck Hammer happened. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, tell me that was recording. Yeah, well, yeah, it was recording. <laughs>